Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week, Horror of Dracula. Released in the UK as simply Dracula, this is Hammer Horror's version of Dracula. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenburg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. I finished all of Deadwood, guys. Woo! All Yay! Of it. Even the film. I finally watched it. I was like, these guys have been talking about it for so long. I watched the whole series, and then I watched the movies. Since we may talk about that in the future, I won't go into any detail, but I will say that I loved it, and I'm even more in love with Timothy Oliphant. Wow, he turned into a silver fox, but aside from that, he's a great actor. He did a fantastic job in the series, and... and uh, I just really love how I, I love how the storyline went, and I love that later on they had the movie that kind of wrapped things up for the fans. So highly recommend sitting through the series because it, it really is entertaining all the way through. I think it is great. It's one of the great modern westerns. So now that it's December when we're recording this podcast, I have started my annual parade through all of my favorite Christmas specials, and I just want to put in a plug for the Jim Carrey version of The Grinch, which <laughs> every year I watch and it's still just as good. The jokes definitely play on a more adult level than some of the other, you know, family-oriented Christmas specials. Uh, 
some just absolutely priceless moments and some good in jokes for uh film fans generally so uh if you're it's a good one to start off with also because it's a little bit goofier and actually kind of works as a not christmas film it's a little less nostalgic uh it's just fun so um yeah that's that's what i'm working on that and more of the great british baking show so <laughs> i was on a very long plane ride and i absolutely can't stand the movie experience on a plane because you know you're interrupted by fasten your seatbelt announcements things like that and a lot of times planes have terrible cuts of movies they're not letterboxed they're in pan and scan a lot of times they're it's just not a great way to see a movie but this plane one was so long that i was like i had to because i'll get motion sickness if i try to read so then that limits my options you know yeah being a podcaster i normally download a bunch of podcasts but that didn't happen this time so I started to watch two or three films and just gave up on them because something was wrong in the way they were formatted or I was like, the special effects are lost on a screen that's about... Like this big? Yeah. Like yeah. Tiny. Yeah, yeah, tiny on the seat in front of you. And so I finally came across the film A Man Called Otto starring oh. Tom Hanks. And yeah. I was like, this is one that's not going to suffer too much on a smaller screen. So I watched it fantastic like really? two thumbs up yeah well then you'll like the original version of man called ove even better it's um like very scan like if you picture the film you watched but then make it scandinavian and, and it's just the humor is extra dry i'll check it out although what's so strange is i can't even imagine it coming from a scandinavian film because when I think of Scandinavia, I think of community and stuff like that. And this is really, this guy is like really American, like, you know, to the point where him and his neighbor are all about the Ford Chevy rivalry, you know, and um, <laughs> I'll be interested in seeing how it was in its original form. Anyway, it was not a huge departure for Tom Hanks. He kind of treaded similar thematic territory not exactly the same but similar in um finch it was called finch hmm. i'll throw out a thumbs up for finch too if you get a chance to see it which is a post-apocalyptic film where tom hanks has a dog and a robot as his companions nice now how does that get to a man called Otto? you just got to watch the two to see what similarities exist there Okay, enough about all that. Let's jump into what we're here for. Horror of Dracula from 1958. Instead of giving a background to the year, this time I'm going to talk about the latest bat news. <laughs> this was all over the news in the past couple of weeks. It's rare that we get new bat news. The headlines splashed all over the place at the end of November was... CBS News reported retiree records bat sex in church attic, helps scientists solve mystery of species super long penis. <laughs> and, uh, scientific Sorry. American, no less, had this bat uses its oversized penis as an arm during sex. So <laughs> what? <laughs> Salon.com, these bat penises are so enormous, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to choose 
as we always do, uh, we choose the most reputable source, in this case, Gizmodo. <laughs> Gizmodo had the headline, These bats seem to use their huge junk to have weird sex. That's the headline. <laughs> nice. Quoting from the article, we don't know much about bats, thanks to their nocturnal and secluded lifestyles. There have been hints that bat reproduction has its own quirks relative to other mammals, though. In some species, for instance, female bats are capable of storing sperm collected before they undergo hibernation, allowing them to get pregnant after they emerge from their slumber in the spring. So for those of you who are advocates of being pregnant in the winter, apparently that's not a bat thing. Um, other species. Well, I feel can... sorry for them because that's when you really want to be at least in your third trimester. That's all I'm saying. But this new study that was published in the journals called Current Biology say their curiosity was initially sparked by a distinctive attribute found among male serotine bats. They're huge junk. <laughs> Quote. <laughs> By chance, we had observed that these bats have disproportionately long penises, and we were always wondering, how does that work? <laughs> Said lead author Nicholas Faisal, a researcher at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. We thought maybe it's like in the dog, where the penis engorges after penetration so that they are locked together, or alternatively, maybe they just couldn't put it inside, but that type of copulation hasn't been reported in mammals until now so they uh, collected hours of footage of these bats going about their day the team documented 97 such mating events finding no evidence that these bats have penetrative sex instead the bat's penis enlarges before it reaches a female bat's vagina during the mating process which has the male grab onto the female by the nape of the neck neck <laughs> The penis seems to brush away the protective tail membrane surrounding the vulva, then stays pressed up against it for extended time. The average length of these sexual encounters was around 53 minutes, but the longest recorded lasted over 12 hours. Oh wow. my God. <laughs> um, there's more. It goes into more detail. We're just going to leave it there. Just saying that we are still learning about bats in... 2023 just wanting you to keep that in mind as we go back to a film from 1958 horror of dracula so the film as you mentioned has a different title in the uk and in the us in the uk just straight dracula but here they changed it to horror of dracula to avoid confusion with the 1931 film at the beginning, they decided that the most successful version of this film would be to do a somewhat low budget and target under 90 minute runtime film. So based on those goals, it necessitated some truncation of the adaptation of the novel and just alighting and dropping characters generally. And we'll get to that more when we cover the plot. But one of the major ones is getting rid of Jonathan Harker, more or less, and they drop Renfield, and Quincy is gone entirely, although he doesn't show up in very many of the film adaptations. They also change some of Dracula's abilities in order to accommodate their special effects budget. So they decided to say outright that Dracula is not able to transform into anything, <laughs> which is, I think, something 
unique to this part of the film franchise. He usually can transform into a bat in most other versions. But they thought that, quote, the idea of being able to change into a bat or a wolf or anything like that made the film seem more like a fairy tale than it needed to be. And they tried to ground the script in some kind of reality. So instead of going for the more fantastical horror elements of the vampire story, they leaned way into the seduction and sexuality latent in the vampire victim dynamic. So I'm really glad you gave us that whole overview of bat sex because uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely backs up the idea that vampires are sexual beings with a lot to be proud of in terms of their their prowess and uh, <laughs> skills in that department. Um, Christopher Lee had never watched any other performances of Dracula until well after making the films in which which he played the character and. Uh, as soon as he got the role, he hurried off to read the book and wanted to play it fresh just based on that source material. It was partially his choice to make Dracula such an erotic character in this version. And he said in an interview, it's a mysterious matter and has something to do with the physical appeal of the person who's draining your life. Women are attracted to men for any hundreds of reasons. One of them is a response to the demand to give oneself. And what greater evidence of giving is there than your blood flowing literally from your own bloodstream? It's the complete abandonment of a woman to the power of a man. And this version, we'll talk about how heteronormative this version is or isn't. Um, I have some thoughts on that. Christopher Lee also said, my one great regret has always been that I had never been able to present the Count exactly as Bram Stoker described him in every way. This was always due to poor scripts and a lack of imagination on the part of people who never seem to understand the full potential of the story. So his character does end up being a little bit one-dimensional relative to the novel, but I kind of think it works. The film had an 81,000 pound budget, so pretty small, and it earned 3.5 million in theatrical worldwide. So a good turnaround for the film. It received its world premiere in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Why? Milwaukee. How? <laughs> Milwaukee. Well, <laughs> wasn't this part of their deal with American International and it was on a double bill? With yes. some crappy, uh, yeah, like, the crappy thing B that movie. couldn't die, yeah, the like the B movie that played after, but um, it then opened at the Gaumont Haymarket in London on May twenty first, nineteen fifty eight, which I personally consider the real premiere. You gotta love the fifties though, because back then movies could premiere in any city. It's like now it, it's gonna be London. It's gonna be a film festival. It's going to be L.A. or it's going to be New York. You know, that's it. Yeah. But back then, it's like you could have a movie premiere in Milwaukee. And, you know, this is the world premiere. You know, it's like I think that's awesome. You know, well, what's interesting is that there seem to have been two different versions of the film that were premiering at this time. There was a U.S. version and then another version that was in Europe and Japan and this quote-unquote Japanese version of Dracula was much longer and more explicit. And people had been on the hunt for this version of Dracula for like 50 years. And then finally, in 2011, Hammer announced that they had found part of the print. The first five reels of the film 
were destroyed in 1984, but the last four reels were recovered. So they added this extra 36 minutes of footage when they later released the film on DVD and Blu-ray. I'm not sure which version of the film I watched. I don't think mine had these deleted 36 minutes, but I'm curious to hear what you two caught. And then the only other note is that after the success of this film, Hammer went on to produce eight more sequels. Eight more sequels, six of which star Christopher Lee in the title role, and four of which also have Peter Cushing, who is awesome in this, almost as good as his performance as Tarkin. But he's a pretty great Van Helsing. Yeah, and it also proves that Peter Cushing was always an old guy. Because this is is 1958, and he's an old guy. It's interesting, (laughs) though, like... He had been in some other Victorian horror kinds of things. And when they approached him for this, I think he considered himself kind of like a tall, lanky stud character, you know, because he he was playing a different kind of Van Helsing than had been previously shown in the 30s films where Van Helsing is this like old, white-haired, grizzled doctor. So compared to the other versions of Van Helsing, Peter Cushing is a stud in this film. But yes, old from the beginning, somehow. (laughs) Yeah. Just a minute, folks. Yes, that's all it takes to visit our refreshment counter in the lobby. This time, there's like a small backstory to it where this person went through the book, Dracula, and um, did their own personal food tour type of thing. So I found a recipe called 44 clove garlic soup, which apparently like the villagers supposedly had given i think it was van helsing that when he went into that little like pub or whatever i'm sorry did you say 44 cloves of garlic 44 yes it's 44 clove garlic soup and it's found on smittenkitchen.com yeah definitely pull it up it's kind of wordy there's a lot of a whole (laughs) a, a whole lot of words to it a whole lot of ingredients but yeah Um, It starts with 26 garlic cloves, unpeeled, cook it with olive oil, butter, sliced onions, thyme. Oh, yeah. uh, 18 garlic cloves, peeled, chicken stock, whipping cream, finely grated Parmesan cheese, and four lemon wedges. Something that you cook in the oven in a baking dish. And there's a whole lot of steps to it. But it's 44 clove garlic soup. Again, I found it on smittenkitchen.com. Apparently, that was fed to Van Helsing to protect him from the vampires. And uh, thought that that would be a fun recipe to share. I never make that. I will. I love garlic. I'll eat garlic raw. That's just too much work for me. I keep my recipes pretty simple. I don't do anything that's too terribly complicated. I can. I am capable of doing that. I just choose not to because I don't have a lot of time. Like if I need a recipe, I'm usually hitting up Campbell's Kitchen. (laughs) But, (laughs) uh, you know, that was an interesting recipe to read. So definitely check it out. And now, on with the show. So, it begins sort of the way the novel begins, with Jonathan Harker on a journey to the castle in Transylvania. He stops and interacts with some locals who don't seem so psyched that he's there. One big difference is this whole story takes place on the continent. There's no visit to or from Britain in this case, but Harker makes his way to the castle. But then after that point, it significantly departs from the original story. 
He's not even there to do a real estate deal. No. He is there to take a role as a librarian cataloging stuff. Yeah, and it's a very different story if Harker is preparing to settle in permanently versus visiting for a business deal. But Harker arrives, his host is nowhere to be seen. There's a really beautiful spread on the table. But I have to say, the sets in this film are some of the worst sets I've ever seen. It was (laughs) so obvious that it was a studio set. And it was kind of like just the wrong amount of clutter. Like it was over-decorated, but also like kind of empty at the same time. It just, it was terrible. (laughs) The art direction was terrible. And also there's like this, well, he's going to the East. So throw in Orientalism stuff and it's like Middle Eastern rugs and things like that. And it's like, it's this mishmash of like, we don't really know what Eastern Europe is like. Yeah, there's like like (laughs) Greek stuff. There's Middle Eastern stuff. There's stuff that looks like it's out of, you know, a Welsh castle, like, you know, tapestries and things. Just, yeah, hodgepodge of awful. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Complaints about Dracula's decorating aside. um, (laughs) Wait, by the way, no cobwebs either. No cobwebs. Yes, it is. It is a perfectly clean, clean. castle. Yes, which is again. I think this is the only adaptation where where the house feels like Dracula does regular entertaining here, and it's you know in perfect order. It's, All it's, right. Okay. Anyway, so Harker is having his dinner when this lovely young woman walks in wearing what can only be described as her toga party outfit. And, right. and she's uh, rocking a mullet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, rocking a mullet and, and her toga. And she tells Harker that she's being held against her will and needs to be rescued. At first, because I had never seen the movie before, I was like, oh, wow, this poor woman's being held hostage. She's asking for help. You know, I didn't think it was a ploy, you know, and I didn't at first I didn't think that she was what she was. So I was like, wow. But his reaction. Yes. I don't believe I understand. <laughs> That's what, what I meant. I don't understand. I'm sitting here telling you I need fucking help. <laughs> 1950s. 1950s. Yeah. Let's not forget. 1950s right? where apparently women spoke a language that men just didn't. I'm sorry, but I failed to understand. <laughs> yeah. Of course you fail to understand. Like, I guess you don't speak woman. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what part of I need help you don't understand, but okay. It just, it cracks me up. It just like, is there a language barrier? Like, what's going on? <laughs> that was the same reaction I had was like, you don't understand. Um, but I guess he needed to say that so the movie could happen. Anyway, I... <laughs> uh, um, she suddenly has a change of heart and is called away when Dracula arrives. Clearly his power over her causes her to reconsider her plea for help and... Dracula takes it upon himself to show Harker to his room and says something about, like, I'm sorry, my housekeeper is on vacation, which, again, is a really hilarious Are line. They given- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are they, though? Yeah, exactly. I think, I think Drac, you know, in order to keep himself busy, he's, you know, got some... He's busting out the Swiffer, knocking yeah. out all the cobwebs in the corner, you know. Yeah, he's got himself the a company's stack of better coming, I gotta get ready. Yeah. Um, but shows Harker to his room. Soon afterwards, Harker has another encounter with the lady in distress, but she then reveals herself to be a vampire 
and she tries, maybe succeeds at biting him. She did get her teeth into him, but she, yeah. I don't think she really drank anything because Dracula pulled her off of him right at the right time. So if she got any blood out of him, it wasn't very much, but he did bleed a lot after she bit him. That moment does kind of call back to, in the novel, the bride's encounter, Harker, and Dracula has this, like, get away from him, he's mine thing. But <laughs> um, the next day, Harker goes to destroy the lady in the coffin seems like he already understands this how vampires work thing i think that that's why he came i think he was on a mission to get rid of vampires and just was posing as a librarian he even said that when he was writing in his diary at one point in the film he was like i'm here to rid the world of this evil for good or something like that because he comes prepared (laughs) yes why he's on this anti-vampire crusade, I don't think it's ever fully explained, right? It's just like a hobby. <laughs> I'm going to circle back to that. Oh my God, I said circle back. I'm going to get back to that later when we move for- further into the plot. So he goes to stake the Bride of Dracula. We have a great Indiana Jones-esque aging of that vampire after she's killed but unfortunately harker is too slow to also get dracula and instead dracula gets him which is i think one of the only versions of the story where that happens other than murnau's nosferatu where in that film again harker is portrayed as dracula's main intended victim don't you mean count orlock no never mind never mind we'll save that for a future podcast yes um, the, the quote-unquote Dracula character. I mean, it's the same character. No, it, it, is, it is Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, my first thought was, why didn't he go for Dracula first? I mean, that wasn't that the whole purpose of going there? He was already in the coffin. But then the yeah. movie would be over at that point. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of interesting about this film is I feel like from this point forward, Christopher Lee might not have any more lines in the film. Am I correct in remembering that? He doesn't have very much dialogue, considering how amazing his voice is. He becomes more or less just this haunting presence. After Harker's terrible fate, we then go to Klausenberg, where we take up Van Helsing as our main hero. Van Helsing goes to kind of track down what's happened to Harker, but discovers that Dracula's coffin is empty He finds Harker's diary and comes and breaks the bad news to the Holmwoods about Harker's fate. Interestingly, in this version, Harker's fiance is Lucy, not Mina. Yeah, they've done a whole musical chairs with the characters. And I don't know why exactly. But in this version, Lucy Holmwood is the sister of Arthur Holmwood instead of the fiance of Arthur Holmwood. And Arthur Holmwood is married to Mina. So this is a very different kind of character drawing for both Lucy, who is, you know, kind of this wanton character in the eyes of the Victorian novel, you know, with three suitors, and Mina as like another independent and not married at the beginning of the novel but then married to Jonathan Harker by the end of it like 
that in some ways, you know, she follows the path that Lucy was supposed to of like having one guy and getting married to him before it's too late. But here we have it all shuffled around and Arthur becomes kind of our main like British hero because Harker is out of the picture. When Van Helsing arrives at the uh, castle, a carriage is speeding away carrying a coffin. Yeah, no boats in this version since everything happens on continental Europe. Which honestly makes more sense to me. I said this when we were watching the original Dracula. It's like, why would Dracula, who's got all of Eurasia to deal with, risk traveling by ocean, the one place where he can actually die? Yeah. When he could go to anywhere in Europe or Asia, and even probably into Africa too, because it predates the Suez Canal, anywhere he wants... But he chooses to go to this island where, you know. I think some of it is probably in the original version, he's shipping like a hundred huge crates of dirt along with him. Nine. Nine? Is it just nine? I think it's nine. They make a big deal in the novel about the number of them because they have to track each one down. Yes. And put holy water on it. Yeah. My recollection was that it was nine, but I will fact check that. I thought it's that... There are nine that come back, but the ones that are... So you think there's just nine that end up at Carfax Abbey? I think so. That doesn't seem like enough. Anyway, it could be that the expense of putting those on a freight train or even the availability of freight trains might have been a factor. But I kind of miss the boat thing just because, you know, one thing I love about epistolary novels is the way they mix in different media. Like... There's journal entries from Jonathan, and then there are letters from Mina to Jonathan, and then there are diary entries from Mina, and then there's newspaper clippings about the boat. Here it becomes a pretty straightforward narrative with Van Helsing at the center. I'll just also make another note. The Holmwood's house, another terribly decorated set. There are just oh my so, gosh. so many different textures and colors and knickknacks, and it's just like the busiest set and you know doesn't line up with what you think their station is supposed to be they seem pretty well to do and their house seems pretty okay so i stand corrected i have fact checked it it was 50 boxes of earth okay 50. So 50. but nine of them got removed from i think it was nine uh, that part i'm not sure but a s small number of them got removed to other places so yeah. they they were all the ones at Carfax Abbey, they knew. So they had to find the missing ones. Yes. Yeah, so there's no real estate intrigue here. Unlike in the 1931 version of the film and in the novel and many other adaptations, Dracula isn't trying to settle in and take over Klausenberg. He's just trying to get revenge for the bride that he lost, that Harker killed. So he's instead in the market for a new bride, and first sets his sights on Lucy, who, when we meet, is clearly already under his spell because she's got some mysterious illness that they're afraid will get worse when they let her know about the death of her fiancé, Harker. Did you notice that when Harker is getting settled in to Dracula's castle, Dracula makes it a point to look at the picture that he sets on the desk, and it's a picture of Lucy? Yes. Yeah, and this shows up, I mean, we'll we'll talk about the 1992 version of Dracula at some point. But yeah, it's a nice detail. It also makes me kind of think that maybe that's the reason why Harker is there. 
because maybe Harker actually kind of knew something was going on. Maybe that's why he showed up there to be a librarian, but he was actually there to get rid of Dracula for good. So he'd leave his fiance alone. I wouldn't even say it was hinted at, but when you put the pieces together, it kind of looks like that. I agree with you that the timeline of this is really fuzzy. Whether Dracula's already started a thing with Lucy, the fact that they are geographically all much closer together in this version. You know, like if he were like taking nightly flights between Transylvania and London in order to get at her, that seems pretty ridiculous. But it seems like Klausenberg is I'm not not down the street from Dracula's castle, but like a carriage ride away. You know, definitely you know, Dracula could go back and forth if he wanted to. I mean, they didn't show that Dracula could fly, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. (laughs) Yeah, I can't tell if they are creating the myth here about vampires needing to be invited in, because there's definitely part of this where like the windows have to be open. And I don't know whether that's enough of the invitation element, but it definitely seems like, you know, Dracula can't open windows from the outside. This is a common thing. The classic line, enter freely and of your own accord, appears in this a couple of times. Doesn't Dracula actually invite Harker in with those words? Yes. I think he invites him in at the very beginning. So I think that we are really emphasizing that in this version of Dracula. Didn't he say something to that effect when he left the letter for Harker when he arrived to the castle and had the meal spread out for him and stuff? Yeah. I'm sorry, I couldn't meet you here. Treat this place as if it were your own. Make yourself at home or something along those lines. Yeah. So the mystery of what's wrong with Lucy is quickly apparent to the audience and also pretty quickly apparent to Van Helsing, who instructs the maid and the Homewoods, we got to put garlic flowers everywhere we got to lock the windows you can't let her out of your sight and of course they fail to do all three of these things well they they put him out but then she convinces gerda the maid to take him away this is actually pretty close to the novel except for that it's with mina i think instead of with lucy it might happen with both of them yeah it's lucy first and then mina yeah but there is a point in the novel the maid takes all the garlic out of the room and they come back in in the morning and it's like oh great all our work has been undone i didn't know that having like live flowers affected vampires that was a new one for me when i saw that in the film but it was weird because then later down the road when they show up to the castle there's a bunch of flowers growing outside i think the flowers themselves are they're the garlic blooms not just any flowers (laughs) wow I learn something new every day because I wasn't aware that garlic bloomed in a way that you could put it in a bouquet. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed when she was in the process of turning, the flowers in the vases on both sides of her bed were dead. They were dead flower arrangements. Yeah. Lucy sadly perishes and is seen shortly after haunting the neighborhood. One of the things that I really liked about this version is part of the original story where Lucy rises from the grave and starts attacking local children. This sometimes shows up and sometimes doesn't, but here it's especially effective because the child she goes after is actually her cousin or niece or, yeah, Tanya. I couldn't tell if Tanya is 
Mina and Arthur's biological daughter are more like just like a ward who lives with them. I think that Tanya is Mina's daughter. It must have been one of those things where maybe she was a widow and remarried. Mr. Holmwood, the, the way he talks about her is like she is not his daughter, but she's Mina's daughter. So that leads me to believe that maybe Mina was widowed and then remarried and, and had that child for her former husband. That's what would make Lucy her aunt. Yeah, it's something something along those lines. Which, honestly, for a movie back in the 50s, that's kind of progressive, you know, to have a kind of a blended family like that. Yeah. So part of the plot is Van Helsing, you know, had tried to convince Arthur to use Lucy as bait in order to trap Dracula. But this idea was too horrible for Arthur to contemplate. And so they missed their opportunity there. And almost immediately after, it's clear that Dracula is going to go after Mina as well. I have to stop for a second here because now that Arthur Homewood's in the storyline, I have to mention, did you notice who played Arthur? He looked familiar, but I didn't, I didn't recognize This is him. Michael Goff, who most of you will know from another bat theme thing. He's Alfred from the Tim Burton Batman oh films. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, that's. I was like, he looks familiar, but he also looks like kind of young and old at the same time. <laughs> like so many men in the fifties, well, they look young <laughs> and old at the same time. And I think it's because they'd all been smoking since they were twelve, you know, because it was fashionable to smoke back then. So of course they aged horribly. <laughs> well, yes. and men never had any work done. So, so he was in, he was Alfred Pennyworth from 1989 to 1997 in four Batman films, the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher films. So, and might I add from the Joel Schumacher films, probably the best person in the cast, <laughs> like the best. Yeah. Uh, so they, they do a classic, let's split up, we'll cover more ground that way kind of thing. They go off to investigate this coffin. Meanwhile, Mina lies very seductively and wantonly waiting for Dracula to appear. One of the things I love about this film is they do a great job of exploring sexual anticipation. At, and yeah. <laughs> it's like very convincing and indeed very erotic when both Lucy and Mina are waiting for Dracula to arrive. It's, um, you know, they start breathing differently and um you know they kind of lay on the bed in this sort of pose of you know being both scared and excited uh for dracula to appear when arthur and van helsing come back they find that mina has also been attacked and they go into protective mode but do it absolutely all wrong each one of them takes a window on the outside and like completely, you know, ignores the fact that Dracula could enter from the house. But this actually is kind of a fun twist of this version. When they had investigated the location of the coffin and found that it was not where it was supposed to be, it turns out that uh, the phone call is coming from inside the house, <laughs> as, <laughs> as they say. Um, and Dracula had Mina move the coffin into their own basement. Cue an awesome chase scene. <laughs> yes. They chase Dracula all the way back to the castle. We get a slightly comic moment where uh, Dracula goes barreling right through the gate that 
you know, our friendly gatekeeper had set up and then the next carriage comes through and he has like that wide yeah. eyed, like, oh no, it's going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> he just yeah. got done fixing it too. And it's just a boom right through it. Yeah. Spoiler alert here, because we're going to get to the ending and we have to talk about the ending. So uh, putting a spoiler alert in here now so that people know to skip to the end of the podcast if they don't want to hear this. When we get to the end of the film, suddenly some of the changes to the nature of vampires become incredibly relevant. As we mentioned, they can't transform into bats, but one thing that they add to this version that shows up in future vampire lore is that sunlight is lethal to the vampire in this version of the story. And Dracula has made it back to his lair just around dawn and is inside and the tapestries are drawn. And so he's okay for a little while, but not for long. There's a great athletic maneuver. By... This scene is burned into my mind as the quintessential scene from any Dracula film. Now, this is my Dracula. I grew up with this Dracula mm. and this Van Helsing. So when I think of Dracula films, I think of Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. You can argue the merits of whether this is better than Lugosi or not, or later Dracula's, which we will get to. But for me, Christopher Lee will always be the quintessential Dracula, because it was my first experience with Dracula. But the final scene, Dracula has the upper hand, and Van Helsing jumps up onto this long table, runs the length of this dining room table, and tears down the curtains, allowing the sun in. And then he grabs two candlestick holders off of the table and takes them and makes a cross out of them, which I thought was super awesome when I was a kid. I'm like, yeah, why don't you just kill Dracula by doing that? You know, why do you need to have a pre-made crucifix? We can DIY this crap, you know? And like, and to me, this scene, I will never not think of this scene when I think of Dracula. This to me is the scene that always comes to mind when, when I think of cinematic Dracula. Yeah, I like that this version definitely plays up a Van Helsing versus Dracula showdown. I feel like a lot of the other versions of Dracula have kind of an anticlimactic ending because, like, he's either being staked in the coffin while he's, like, more or less asleep or, you know, other versions kind of draw it out in a way that is less satisfying. But I do like corralling Dracula between the crucifix and the sunlight in order to do him in. Yeah, and Harker becomes a vampire in this film. I think that that was how Hammer is going to get him out of the picture so that in their series, it's not going to be as much about Harker as it is going to be about Van Helsing versus Dracula. And that becomes a thing carried on into other studios and other films. This is like a two thumbs up for me. It is not the best of the Hammer Draculas, in my opinion. I think that is yet to come in a later installment, but we'll get to that when we do that film. However, I cannot recommend this enough. Let's keep in mind that the Hayes Code is still in effect and will be for another 10 years. And just like 
Dracula's daughter was pushing the limits way back at the beginning of the Hayes Code. Hammer Studios in particular with Dracula starts pushing the limits toward the end of the Hayes Code when it comes to sexuality and blood, which is honestly what you want from a vampire film. That's what I want from a vampire film anyway. So two thumbs up. You know, when Mina is rescued and they're giving her the blood transfusion and the doctor gives her directive on recovery, he tells her to have some wine. It's like, yeah. girl, go get drunk. You <laughs> had a blood transfusion. Go get drunk. You'll feel better. In the novel, it's like brandy and stuff. They're like, oh, you have to have. They drink brandy. They drink port. They drink a lot of stuff. You know, that's the Victorians for you. It's like, oh, I don't know what'll fix this. Let's give them whiskey. You know? <laughs> People nice. still drink hot toddies to this day when they're sick. You know I what do. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have. I did enjoy the film. It, w- it was entertaining. Again, it did keep my interest. You know, I saw a lot of the 50s style kind of like through the movie just because of the lack of art direction. It was obvious when the film was made to me. You know, you kind of notice it like films in the 70s that are about the 20s. Like you could tell it was filmed in the 70s. It's kind of the same principle, different concept. Aside from that, that's nothing. I really enjoyed the film. I like the direction that, that it went. It was a neat take on it. I'd never seen that film before. So thank you for introducing that film to us. This is not my favorite adaptation of the novel, but in terms of where the mystique of vampires as like having a dom-sub relationship with their victims, as far as that goes, this film crushes it. Like it absolutely gets that dynamic. You totally feel Christopher Lee's power over the victims in a convincing way. And I'd say overall, the benefits of Christopher Lee's performance and Peter Cushing's performance outweighs the terrible art direction. So still recommend. Yeah. Okay. We have so many questions. I don't know how many times we need to do a fact check. So if you want to correct the record or have us correct the record you can write to us at gc8 podcast that's letter g letter c number eight podcast at gmail.com until next time this is eric this is rosie this is johanna signing off (laughs) cut it out and i'll talk so talk about something else (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha,